A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. The sign on the wall seemed to quaver under a film of sliding warm water. Eccles felt his eyelids blink over his stare, and the sign burned in this momentary darkness. Time Safari Incorporated. Safaris to any year in the past. You name the animal, we take you there, you shoot it. Warm phlegm gathered in Eccles' throat. He swallowed and pushed it down. The muscles around his mouth formed a smile as he put his hand slowly out upon the air and in that hand waved a check for $10,000 to the man behind the desk. Does this safari guarantee I come back alive? We guarantee nothing, said the official, except the dinosaurs. He turned. This is Mr. Travis, your safari guide in the past. He'll tell you what and where to shoot. If he says no shooting, no shooting. If you disobey instructions, there's a stiff penalty of another $10,000, plus possible government action, on your return. Eccles glanced across the vast office at a mass and tangle, a snaking and humming of wires and steel boxes, at an aurora that flickered, now orange, now silver, now blue. There was a sound like a gigantic bonfire, burning all of time, all the years and all the parchment calendars, all the hours piled high and set aflame. A touch of the hand and this burning wood on the instant beautifully reverse itself. Eccles remembered the wording in the advertisements to the letter. Out of the chars and ashes, out of dust and coals, like golden salamanders, the old years, the green years might leap. Roses sweet in the air, white hair turn Irish black. Wrinkles vanish, all Everything fly back to seed, flee death, rush down to their beginnings. Suns rise in western skies and set in glorious easts. Moons eat themselves opposite to the custom. All and everything cupping one in another like Chinese boxes, rabbits into hats. All and everything returning to the fresh death, the seed death, the green death, to the time before the beginning. A touch of a hand might do it the merest touch of a hand. Unbelievable, Eccles breathed, the light of the machine on his thin face. A real time machine? He shook his head. Makes you think, if the election had gone badly yesterday, I might be here now running away from the results. <laughs> Thank God Keith won. He'll make a fine president of the United States. Yes, said the man behind the desk. We're lucky. If Deutscher had gotten in, we'd have the worst kind of dictatorship. There's an anti-everything man for you. A militarist, anti-Christ, anti-human, anti-intellectual. People called us up, you know, joking but not joking. Said if Deutscher became president, they wanted to go live in 1492. <laughs> of course, it's not our business to conduct escapes, but to form safaris. Anyway, Keith's president now. All you've got to worry about is shoot my dinosaur. Eccles finished it for him. A Tyrannosaurus Rex. The tyrant lizard. The most incredible monster in history. Sign this release. Anything happens to you, we're not responsible. Those dinosaurs are hungry. Eccles flushed angrily. <laughs> Trying to scare me. Frankly, yes. We don't want anyone going who'll panic at the first shot. 
Six safari leaders were killed last year and a dozen hunters. We're here to give you the severest thrill a real hunter ever asked for, traveling you back 60 million years to bag the biggest game of all time. Your personal check's still there. Tear it up. Mr. Eccles looked at the check. His fingers twitched. Good luck, said the man behind the desk. Mr. Travis, he's all yours. They moved silently across the room, taking their guns with them, toward the machine, toward the silver metal and the roaring light. First a day, and then a night, and then a day, and then a night. Then it was day, night, day, night, a week, a month, a year, a decade. A.D. 2055. A.D. 2019. 1999? 1957? Gone. The machine roared. They put on their oxygen helmets and tested the intercoms. Eccles swayed on the padded seat, his face pale, his jaw stiff. He felt the trembling in his arms and he looked down and found his hands tight on the new rifle. There were four other men in the machine, Travis, the safari leader, his assistant, L'Esperance, and two other hunters, Billings and Kramer. They sat looking at each other, and the years blazed around them. Can these guns get a dinosaur cold? Eccles felt his mouth say. If you hit them right, said Travis on the helmet radio. Some dinosaurs have two brains, one in the head, another far down the spinal column. We stay away from those. That's stretching luck. Put your first two shots into the eyes, if you can. Blind them. Then go back into the brain. The machine howled. Time was a film run backward. Suns fled, and ten million moons fled after them. Think, said Eccles. Every hunter that ever lived would envy us today. This makes Africa seem like Illinois. The machine slowed. Its scream fell to a murmur. The machine stopped. The sun stopped in the sky. The fog that had enveloped the machine blew away, and they were in an old time, a very old time indeed, three hunters and two safari heads with their blue metal guns across their knees. Christ isn't born yet, said Travis. Moses has not gone to the mountain to talk with God. The pyramids are still in the earth, waiting to be cut out and put up. Remember that. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, none of them exists. The man nodded. That, Mr. Travis pointed, is the jungle of 60,002,055 years before President Keith. He indicated a metal path that struck off into green wilderness, over streaming swamp, among giant ferns and palms. And that, he said, is the path laid by time safari for your use. It floats six inches above the earth, doesn't touch so much as one grass blade, flower, or tree. It's an anti-gravity metal. Its purpose is to keep you from touching this world of the past in any way. Stay on the path. Don't go off it. I repeat, don't go off for any reason. If you fall off, there's a penalty. And don't shoot any animal we don't okay. Why? asked Eccles. They sat in the ancient wilderness. Far birds' cries blew on a wind, and the smell of tar and an old salt sea, moist grasses and flowers, the color of blood. We don't want to change the future. We don't belong here in the past. The government doesn't like us here. We have to pay big graft to keep our franchise. The time machine's a finicky business. 
Not knowing it, we might kill an important animal, a, a small bird, a roach, a flower even, thus destroying an important link in a growing species. That's not clear, said Eccles. All right, Travis continued. Say we accidentally kill one mouse here. That means all the future families of this one particular mouse are destroyed, right? Right. And all the families of the families of the families of that one mouse, with a stamp of your foot, you annihilate first one, then a dozen, then a thousand, a million, a billion possible mice. And so they're dead, said Eccles. So what? So what? Travis snorted quietly. Well, what about the foxes that'll need those mice to survive? For want of ten mice, a fox dies. For want of ten foxes, a lion starves. For want of a lion, all manners of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. Eventually it all boils down to this. Fifty-nine million years later, a caveman, one of a dozen on the entire world, goes hunting wild boar or saber-toothed tiger for food. But you, friend, have stepped on all the tigers in that region by stepping on one single mouse. So the caveman starves. And the caveman, please note, is not just any expendable man. No, he is an entire future nation. From his loins would have sprung ten sons. From their loins, one hundred sons, and thus onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man, and you destroy a race, a people, and an entire history of life. It is comparable to slaying some of Adam's grandchildren. The stomp of your foot on one mouse could start an earthquake, the effects of which could shake our earth and destinies down through time to their very foundations. With the death of that one caveman, a billion others yet unborn are throttled in the womb. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest, and only Asia waxes healthy and teeming. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. Step on a mouse and you leave your print like a grand canyon across eternity. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington might not cross the Delaware. There might never be a United States at all. So be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. I see, said Eccles. And it wouldn't pay for us to even touch the grass? Correct. Crushing certain plants could add up infinitesimally. A little error here would multiply in 60 million years, all out of proportion. Of course, maybe our theory is wrong. Maybe time can't be changed by us. Or maybe it can be changed only in little subtle ways. You know, a dead mouse here makes an insect imbalance there, a population disproportion later, a bad harvest further on, a depression, mass starvation, and finally a change in social temperament in far-flung countries. Something much more subtle like that. Perhaps only a soft breath, a whisper, a hair, pollen on the air. Such a slight, slight change that unless you looked close, you wouldn't see it. I mean, who knows? Who really can say he knows? We don't know. We're guessing. But until we do know for certain whether our messing around in time can make a big roar or a little rustle in history, we're being careful. This machine, this path, your clothing and bodies were sterilized, as you know, before the journey. We wear these oxygen helmets so we can't introduce our bacteria into an ancient atmosphere. 
Now, how do we know which animals to shoot? They're marked with red paint, said Travis. Today, before our journey, we sent L'Esperance here back with the machine. He came to this particular area and followed certain animals. Studying them? Right, said L'Esperance. I track them through their entire existence, noting which of them lives longest, very few, how many times they mate, not often, life short, when I find one that's going to die, when a tree falls on him, or one that drowns in a tar pit, I note the exact hour, minute and second, I shoot a paint bomb, it leaves a red patch on his side, and we can't miss it. Then I correlate our arrival in the past so that we meet the monster not more than two minutes before he would have died anyway. This way we kill only animals with no future, that are never going to mate again. You see how careful we are? But if you come back this morning in time, said Eccles eagerly, you must have bumped into us, our safari. How did it turn out? Was it successful? I mean, did all of us get through? Alive? Travis and Lesperance gave each other a look. That'd be a paradox, said the latter. Time doesn't permit that sort of mess, a man meeting himself. When such occasions threaten, time steps aside, like an airplane hitting an air pocket. You felt the machine jump just before we stopped? That was us, passing ourselves on the way back to your future. We saw nothing. There's no way of telling if this expedition was a success, if we got a monster, or whether all of us, meaning you, Mr. Eccles, got out alive. Eccles smiled palely. Cut that, said Travis sharply. Everyone on his feet. They were ready to leave the machine. The jungle was high and the jungle was broad, and the jungle was the entire world forever and forever. Sounds like music and sounds like flying tents filled the sky, and those were pterodactyls soaring with cavernous gray wings, gigantic bats of delirium and night fever. Eccles, balanced on the narrow path, aimed his rifle playfully. Stop that, said Travis. Don't even aim for fun, blast you. If your guns should go off, Eccles flushed. Where's that Tyrannosaurus? L'Esperance checked his wristwatch. Up ahead, we'll bisect his trail in 60 seconds. Look for the red paint. Don't shoot till we give the word. Stay on the pass. Stay on the pass. They moved forward in the wind of morning. Strange, murmured Eccles. Up ahead, 60 million years, election day over. Keith made president, everyone's celebrating. And here we are, a million years lost, and they don't exist. The things we worried about for months, a lifetime, not even born or thought of yet. Safety catches off, everyone, ordered Travis. You, first shot, Eccles. Second, Billings. Third, Kramer. I've hunted tiger, wild boar, buffalo, elephant, but now... This is it, said Eccles. I'm shaking like a kid. Ah, said Travis. Everyone stopped. Travis raised his hand. Ahead, he whispered. In the mist. There he is. There's his royal majesty now. The jungle was wide and full of twitterings, rustlings, murmurs, and sighs. Suddenly, it all ceased, as if someone had shut a door. A sound of thunder. Out of the mist, one hundred yards away, came Tyrannosaurus Rex. It, whispered Eccles, it, shh! It came on great, oiled, resilient, striding legs. 
It towered thirty feet above half of the trees, a great evil god, folding its delicate watchmaker's claws close to its oily reptilian chest. Each lower leg was a piston, a thousand pounds of white bone sunk in thick ropes of muscle, sheathed over in a gleam of pebbled skin like the mail of a terrible warrior. Each thigh was a ton of meat, ivory, and steel mesh, and from the great breathing cage of the upper body those two delicate arms dangled out front, arms with hands which might pick up and examine men like toys while the snake neck coiled. And the head itself, a ton of sculptured stone, lifted easily upon the sky. Its mouth gaped, exposing a fence of teeth like daggers. Its eyes rolled, ostrich eggs, empty of all expression save hunger. It closed its mouth in a death grin. It ran, its pelvic bones crushing aside trees and bushes, its taloned feet clawing damp earth, leaving prints six inches deep wherever it settled its weight. It ran with a gliding ballet step, far too poised and balanced for its ten tons. It moved into a sunlit area warily, its beautifully reptilian hands feeling the air. Why, why... Eccles twitched his mouth. Could reach up and grab the moon. Shh, Travis jerked angrily. He hasn't seen us yet. It can't be killed. Eccles pronounced this verdict quietly, as if there could be no argument. He had weighed the evidence, and this was his considered opinion. The rifle in his hand seemed a cap gun. We were fools to come. It's impossible. Shut up, hissed Travis. Nightmare. Turn around, commanded Travis. Walk quietly to the machine. We'll remit half your fee. I didn't realize it would be this big, said Eccles. I miscalculated, that's all. I, now I want out. It sees us. There's the red paint on its chest. The tyrant lizard raised itself. Its armored flesh glittered like a thousand green coins. The coins, crusted with slime, steamed. In the slime, tiny insects wriggled so that the entire body seemed to twitch and undulate even while the monster itself did not move. It exhaled. The stink of raw flesh blew down the wilderness. Get me out of here, said Eccles. It was never like this before. I was always sure I'd come to alive. I had good guides, good safaris, and safety. I mean, this time I figured wrong. I met my match and admitted. This is too much for me to get a hold of. Don't run, said L'Esperance. Turn around. Hide in the machine. Yes. Eccles seemed to be numb. He looked at his feet as if trying to make them move. He gave a grunt of helplessness. Eccles! He took a few steps, blinking, shuffling. Not that way! The monster, at the first motion, lunged forward with a terrible scream. It covered one hundred yards in six seconds. The rifles jerked up and blazed fire. A windstorm from the beast's mouth engulfed them in the stench of slime and old blood. The monster roared, teeth glittering with sun. The rifles cracked again. Their sound was lost in shriek and lizard thunder. The great level of the reptile's tail swung up, lashed sideways, 
Trees exploded in clouds of leaf and branch. The monster twitched its jeweler's hands down to fondle at the men, to twist them in half, to crush them like berries, to cram them into its teeth and its screaming throat. Its boulder stone eyes leveled with the men. They saw themselves mirrored. They fired at the metallic eyelids and the blazing black iris. Like a stone idol, like a mountain avalanche, Tyrannosaurus fell. Thundering, it clutched trees, pulled them with it. It wrenched and tore the metal path. The men flung themselves back and away. The body hit ten tons of cold flesh and stone. The guns fired. The monster lashed its armored tail, twitched its snake jaws, and lay still. A fount of blood spurted from its throat. Somewhere inside, a sack of fluids burst. Sickening gushes drenched the hunters. They stood red and glistening. The thunder faded. The jungle was silent. After the avalanche, a green peace. After the nightmare, morning. Billings and Kramer sat on the pathway and threw up. Travis and Lesperance stood with smoking rifles, cursing steadily. In the time machine, on his face, Eccles lay shivering. He had found his way back to the path, climbed into the machine. Travis came walking glanced at Eccles, took cotton gauze from a metal box, and returned to the others who were sitting on the path. Clean up! They wiped the blood from their helmets. They began to curse, too. The monster lay a hill of solid flesh. Within, you could hear the sighs and murmurs as the furthest chambers of it died, the organs malfunctioning, liquids running a final instant from pocket to sack to spleen, everything shutting off closing up forever. It was like standing by a wrecked locomotive or a steam shovel at quitting time, all valves being released or levered tight. Bones cracked. The tonnage of its own flesh, off balance, dead weight, snapped the delicate forearms, caught underneath. The meat settled, quivering. Another cracking sound. There. Esperance checked his watch. Right on time. That's the giant tree that was scheduled to fall and kill this animal originally. He glanced at the two hunters. You want the trophy picture? What? We can't take a trophy back to the future. The body has to stay right here where it would have died originally so the insects, birds, and bacteria can get at it as they were intended to do. Everything in balance. The body stays. But uh, we can take a picture of you standing near it. The two men tried to think but gave up, shaking their heads. They let themselves be led along the metal path. They sank wearily into the machine cushions. They gazed back at the ruined monster, the stagnating mound, where already strange reptilian birds and golden insects were busy at the steaming armor. A sound on the floor of the time machine stiffened them. Eccles sat there, shivering. I'm sorry, he said at last. Get up! cried Travis. Eccles got up. Go out on that path alone, said Travis. He had his rifle pointed. You're not coming back in the machine. We're leaving you here. Lesperance seized Travis's arm. Wait! Stay out of this! Travis shook his hand away. This fool nearly killed us. But it isn't that so much, no. No, it's his shoes. Look at them. He ran off the path. That ruins us. We'll forfeit thousands of dollars of insurance. We guarantee no one leaves the path. He left it. 
Oh, the fool. I'll have to report to the government. I mean, they might revoke our license to travel. Who knows what he's done to time? To history? Take it easy. All he did was kick up some dirt. Yeah, how do we know, cried Travis. We don't know anything. It's all a mystery. Get out of here, Eccles. Eccles fumbled his shirt. I'll I'll pay anything, huh? A hundred thousand dollars. Travis glared at Eccles' checkbook and spat. Go out there. The monster's next to the path. Stick your arms up to the elbows in his mouth. Then you can come back with us. Is is that so reasonable? The monster's dead, you idiot. The bullets. The bullets can't be left behind. They don't belong in the past. They might change anything. Here's my knife. Dig them out. The jungle was alive again, full of the old tremorings and bird cries. Eccles turned slowly to regard the primeval garbage dump, that hill of nightmares and terror. After a long time, like a sleepwalker, he shuffled out along the path. He returned, shuddering, five minutes later, his arms soaked and red to the elbows. He held out his hands. Each held a number of steel bullets. Then he fell. He lay where he fell, not moving. You didn't have to make him do that, said L'Esperance. Didn't I? It's too early to tell. Travis nudged the still body. He'll live. Next time he won't go hunting game like this, okay? He jerked his thumb wearily at L'Esperance. Switch on. Let's go home. Fourteen ninety two, seventeen seventy six, eighteen twelve. They cleaned their hands and faces. They changed their caking shirts and pants. Eccles was up and around again, not speaking. Travis glared at him for a full ten minutes. Don't look at me, cried Eccles. I haven't done anything. Who can tell? I just ran off the path, that's all. Little mud on my shoes. What do you want me to do? Get down and pray? We might need it. I'm warning you, Eccles. I might kill you yet. I've got my gun ready. I'm innocent. I've done nothing. 1999, 2000, 2055. The machine stopped. Get out, said Travis. The room was there as they had left it, but not the same as they had left it. The same man sat behind the same desk, but the same man did not quite sit behind the same desk. Travis looked around swiftly. Everything okay here? He snapped. Fine, welcome home. Travis did not relax. He seemed to be looking through the one high window. Okay, Eccles, get out. Don't ever come back. Eccles could not move. You heard me, said Travis. What are you staring at? Eccles stood smelling of the air, and there was a thing to the air. A chemical taint so subtle, so slight, that only a faint cry of his subliminal senses warned him it was there. The colors, white, gray, blue, orange in the wall, in the furniture, in the sky beyond the window, were, were... And there was a feel. His flesh twitched. His hands twitched. He stood drinking the oddness with the pores of his body. Somewhere, someone must have been screaming one of those whistles that only a dog can hear. His body screamed silence in return. Beyond this room, beyond this wall, beyond this man who was not quite the same man seated at this desk that was not quite the same desk, lay an entire world of streets and people. What sort of world it was now, there was no telling. He could feel them moving there. 
beyond the walls, almost, like so many chess pieces blown in a dry wind. But the immediate thing was the sign painted on the office wall, the same sign he had read earlier today on first entering. Somehow the sign had changed. Time Sephari, Incorporated. Sephari's to any year in the past. You name the animal. We take you there. You shoot it. Eccles felt himself fall into a chair. He fumbled crazily at the thick slime on his boots. He held up a clod of dirt, trembling. No, it can't be. Not a little thing like that, no! Embedded in the mud, glistening green and gold and black, was a butterfly. Very beautiful and very dead. Not a little thing like that. Not a butterfly, cried Eccles. It fell to the floor, an exquisite thing, a small thing that could upset balances and knock down a line of small dominoes and then big dominoes and then gigantic dominoes all down the years across time. Eccles' mind whirled. It couldn't change things. Killing one butterfly couldn't be that important, could it? His face was cold. His mouth trembled, asking, Who, who won the presidential election yesterday? The man behind the desk laughed. You joking? You know very well. Deutscher, of course. Who else? Not that fool weakling Keith. We got an iron man now, a man with guts. The official stopped. What's wrong? Eccles moaned. He dropped to his knees. He scrabbled at the golden butterfly with shaking fingers. Can't we? He pleaded to the world, to himself to the officials, to, to the machine. Can't we take it back? Can't we make it alive again? Can't we start over? Can't we? He did not move. Eyes shut, he waited, shivering. He heard Travis breathe loud in the room. He heard Travis shift his rifle, click the safety catch, and raise the weapon. There was a sound of thunder. Hello, that was A Sound of Thunder, written by Ray Bradbury in 1952. It's a famous story. It inspired a Simpsons episode, among other things, and has greatly influenced the way we think about traveling in time. With me today to discuss the story is my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Al Ewing. Most of the stories we're looking at on this show are pulp stories, stories from the pages of magazines like Weird Tales. This story appeared in Collier's, a respectable weekly magazine, with house and home articles that published war reporting and muckraking journalism along with the odd adventure tale or two. Al, you said in your notes that Bradbury blurs the line between what's science fiction and what's not. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, um, I've got a copy with me of the, uh, the Golden Apples of the Sun, which is a collection where I first read this story. And it's kind of a notable collection because it's a, it's a mixture of science fiction, um, fantasy, tales set in the present day, but with science fiction elements, tales set in the future, like uh, like the one we've just heard. There's two in this. There's one called The Pedestrian, and there's one called I See You Never. And they're both pretty much the same story, in that The Pedestrian is about a man in a future world who uh, he goes out walking, and, you know, nobody ever walks up while he's watching TV. It's, it's very this sort of Fahrenheit 451 view of television as this evil thing, and, yeah, who can say that he was wrong? 
Um, but, yeah, the, a man goes out walking and a police car driven by no one stops him and the man just tries to explain that he's walking because he likes to walk. He likes the air. He likes to, to look and see the world. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, get in. We're going to take you to a um, a special psychiatric center where you'll be study. We'll study your aggressive tendencies. Um, and he's sort of driven away never to be seen again. And then I See You Never is... It was written in 1947 for the New Yorker, I believe, and uh, it's very much set in the present day or the, the near future at least. And it's about a, a Mexican immigrant mm-hmm. on a temporary visa who stayed six months too long. Mm-hmm. And basically the police, you know, very apologetically come to his boarding house, drag him away. And, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Ramirez is sort of saying his last goodbyes to uh, Mrs. O'Brien, his landlady. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you have been very good to me, Mrs. O'Brien. You've been... Um, my Mexican accent's terrible. <laughs> you've been you've been very good to me, Mrs. O'Brien. And then he sort of breaks down and says, "Oh, Mrs. O'Brien, I see you never. I see you never. And it's um, you've been so very good to me, and I see you never. And and then he's just led away. And now, this doesn't end- sound very fantastical, or no. It's it ends with um, Mrs. O'Brien sort of eating her lunch, and then you know stopping him and thinking. So I've just realised we're never going to see Mr. Ramirez again. And the thing is, that's not. But the two stories. The only real difference between them is that one is set in the future and one is set in the present. And we're actually, that second one, I see you never, we're actually in a world where this is, as I speak right now, somebody is being taken away because they're only on a temporary visa or because their application to stay has been rejected. Mm -hmm. Someone who is, you know, literally seeking asylum in this country is almost certainly being sent back to a place where there's a very good chance that they will be tortured to death. Mm -hmm. And this could be a man, this could be a woman, this could be a child. And this is happening right now. And the only thing preventing that, the only thing that makes that reality instead of science fiction is that, you know, Darth Vader isn't doing it. It's Gordon Brown. Um, and I think, I think that's something that Ray Bradbury understood, the, the thinness that separates the world we're in. And it's as true in the 50s as it is today with our amazing, you know, I'm carrying in my pocket a sort of global communications device that can reach anybody in the world with a similar device. You know, it's called a mobile phone. Um, that's that's Star Trek. That's we're living in the future, and the veneer that separates our own world from the world of science fiction is it's paper thin. Even in even in uh, to get back to the the story at hand, to get back to a sound of thunder, mm-hmm. you've got this political race between uh, Keith and Deutsche. You know, Deutsche, the anti-life, the anti-god. Yeah. And on one hand, you know, anti-life, anti-god. That's the kind of things people were saying about uh, communists at the time. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, from our point of view today, we might be thinking of McCarthy in those terms. Yeah. And I. I don't think Bradbury was a noted red-hating, judging from every other story he's ever written. I don't think he was noted for his hatred of the Red Menace. Mark, do you think that uh, Bradbury had different kind of concerns than uh, than other than pulp science fiction writers had at the time? I, I think the way he wrote that it's it's not simply about the kinds of topics, but the, even in the ones which I mean, you know, his his some of his one of his collections is called R for Rocket. And Rocket seems like as hardcore a nerdy definition of science fiction as you can think of. But if a lot of his stories, you have this feel that he was from the Midwest and that they're set in this very lyrical and in some ways quite cliched simple idea of an old Midwest where it's a nuclear family in a little house with a picket fence and they go out in the garden and space with rockets and planets and the moon is just there, right above the garden, that actually getting into space 
is as easy as leaving the house in your nice Midwest home. And some of these stories are quite dark and some of them are um, very Peter Panish almost. And there's a very curious edge between this, uh, the grinness of the stories that, that Al was talking about and the the sense of, of a, a potential American Eden, which is sort of right there but somehow being lost. He was also, I mean, he explicitly said that he regarded space travel as the f- the coming frontier, that the frontier in the idea, the old idea of America, that well, obviously that was all filled up. They got to the other coast and, you know, everyone, there wasn't any internal frontier anymore. But if you went upwards, that's where the frontier was. And all possibility was there, but also encounter with forces which were, there was a real sense of danger. And some of the sense of danger is to do with fiction itself, that fiction fiction carries this charge of possibility where, you know, it's lovely, you can imagine anything you like, but anything you like includes some things which will come back and not be so nice. The The first story in a collection called The Illustrated Man, The Velt, yeah. is a story of two children who, I mean, essentially what they have is a very sophisticated, large-scale television that you can walk around in, and they program it to... In their nursery. In their nursery. It's they sort of a virtual reality uh, apparatus that they've yeah. got in their nursery. Uh, and they program it to some kind of junglescape. I'm not quite sure why it's called The Velt, but... Um, I think that's that's the term for uh, the the terrain in yeah, Africa. Yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not as jungly as uh, maybe this is just me misimagining when I was reading it. But anyway, it, it, and their parents wander into it, and the you know the lovely animals in this documentary um, eat the parents. Is this the the seed of all those trapped in a virtual reality prison stories? Um, no, the game is real. <laughs> well, it seems like he did that. Is this? It I seems mean, in like a that, sense, this story, the story we're talking about, is is actually it's, a, it's pre-Space Invaders, but it's it's pretty much yeah, this and, Space Invaders game is almost real. No, it is real. And I, I think this they story is, is the same. You know, the t- it's called the Time Machine instead of uh, instead of a hologram or a or a Space Invaders game or something. But it is basically something which takes you into a a different imagined space. But the imagined space affects right. affects the real the real world when you come back to it it is it is telling that the i mean the the sort of time travel the time travel changing the past element is the it's kind of the point of the story but an right. enormous chunk of the story is on you know the thunder lizard the description of the tyrant lizard you know stomping you know towards the reader <laughs> <laughs> using using the amazing sound effects capabilities that was live yeah. live tyrannosaur um, but it's this sort of, you know, the roaring, he he spares no verbal expense in bringing you, you know, live to your brain, this immense creature. And and that's something Ray Bradbury does. He uses poetry in his in his descriptions of things. And he's been, he's been called the poet of science fiction. I, yeah, I'd say that's a, a true... A true description in that he, whereas another writer, um, I'll pull Asimov out of the air unfairly, um, might, you know, just give a general description. You know, Bradbury will use, he'll sort of use sentences that, you know, don't really fit in kind of, kind of sentences that work on the, on the subconscious rather than the conscious perhaps to kind of really just call it, you know, call the, the feel and the smell 
of it. And, and at the end, where, you know, he actually tails off in the crowd. I says, like, and things are different, and, 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 and there was a feel. Yeah, yeah. And the thing of, like, you know, he... He's not even using words there. He's just using mm. he's using punctuation almost to kind of describe this indescribable thing. And I think that's something possibly only he could have done. Right. I, I think he, it comes from a there is an American tradition of this, and one of his um, one of his avatars, which is a, a writer he explicitly refers to in some of his stories, is Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. And Edgar Allan Poe is, in some senses, the founding writer of American literature, partly just by virtue of time but also by virtue of his subjects which are um in some ways startlingly modern and poe also does a lot of work with descriptions of the space you're in celebration of the american landscape in a very kind of rich and somewhat uncanny way and features in some of some of bradbury's stranger stories there's a story called the exile where the exiles where a group of space explorers are just about to land on Mars and there on Mars waiting in a panic are the three witches from Macbeth, Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> Roderick Usher, a whole panoply of figures from horror stories trying to stop them because they feel this rationalist encroachment of the technological human age is is going to drive them further into exile. And, and I think, you know, other parts of his obsessions were this sense that the written imagination was something very important and under threat by the modern world that Fahrenheit 451 is his famous story which is in a future where books about imaginative space were being burnt and and that people who read books were were a um a persecuted secret counterculture and subculture yeah there's a there's a story you did called the murderer which um, is basically kind of semi-accurately predicting the rise of the mobile phone and the iPod and, you know, the, the portable telly. How so? How's that? Well, basically, it's, um, it's, it's another of his heroes who's, like, locked up by the police for being mad. And the reason he's mad is because he, he doesn't like the modern world. Um, but in this case, the modern world includes kind of a, a wrist phone and a wrist kind of vid phone, which is basically a mobile phone, only it's worn on the wrist. And this this thing that kind of constantly chirps at you, and you're constantly saying, "Yeah, I'm on the train. I'm coming home. I'll be there in five minutes." And and in his in his world, very you know, accurate there. Yeah, the door the door talks to you. Um, all everywhere constantly plays music at you. Uh, the door talks to you. The you know all the kitchen appliances talk to you. Presumably your car talks to you, saying, "You know, turn left here, <laughs> turn right here." You know. Um, in fact, I think there is something like that. There's a special radio in the car, and he pours ice cream into it uh, to silence it. So he seems very interested in how in how technology or or future events or things that don't quite exist now affect domestic space yeah. affect affect like people's personal lives. It's not so much yeah. uh, big public uh, swashbuckling adventure stories. There's, this, there's this idea that without silence, the imagination will be destroyed, and because all you'll be focusing on all the time is you know your iPod or your mobile phone or your sat nav. Mm. And you won't have you won't there won't be room in your life to sort of go off somewhere and think. And I think that's something um he comes back to that again and again, the kind of freedom to walk and think and move that's constantly under threat. I mean it basically what a, his argument is that fiction all fictional spaces contain a potential peril and that this is a good thing in that it excites us and it it expands our imagination, but it's also 
you know, evil lurks there too. And the, this dichotomy, I think that's what's interesting about this story, is that he picks on something which is, it's a staple of a certain strand of time travel stories, uh, which is that they actually do go back to see a dinosaur, and in fact to hunt a dinosaur. And there's something very sort of cheap and shabby about this particular organisation, which is which is part of the sort of satirical comedy, I think, the the sense that the the organisation is is really run on pretty dodgy the health and safety issues in this whole <laughs> setup. Well, and, the, and there's the implication that uh, that they probably don't even have uh, above board permission to be doing what they're doing. They're they're giving kickbacks to whoever the current government is to kind of cover them. And that that they have a very uh, casual attitude to um, the, the, to the wonders of of unspoiled uh, nature, but also the the mysteries of the science that they're obviously exploiting. Yeah, which is, I mean, the classic now for us. The idea of time travel now has become such a regular, routinely repeated idea that these paradoxes that that are involved in it jump out at us quite quickly. At this point, this was not necessarily true. It's it's quite an early story in that in that sense, the sense that changing time, changing something that happened in the past, will affect the present. It, it's not a totally new idea, but it's it's still underexplored. But these people in the story, you know, they they had, they've set up a company. He's not the first person to go back, and they they have a a really strange mixture of being very sort of forbidding about the things you can do. But also incredibly casual about it, and and their their sense of the effect of it doesn't make any sense at all when you think about it. They're saying, first of all, there's this big speech where he says you mustn't do anything. If you kill one mice, it kills all the other mice, and then that that means there's no saber-toothed tiger, and then history will be utterly transformed. And then a little bit later, he says, but actually, we don't have a clue. It might do nothing at all. <laughs> and then when they come back. Eccles says there was a strange taint in the air, but Travis just says to the guy behind the desk, everything fine here? And it's like, yeah, everything's fine. He doesn't spot it. Well, what does that mean? They've gone back and forward so often that they're just desensitized to these huge changes they're making that's every it. time they've gone that's back. It. That's something we don't know. Yeah, that's right. Every time they come back, there, there might be something a bit. And uh, this has already happened half a dozen times, but this guy Eccles has really pissed them off, so... So they shoot him, obviously. <laughs> well, they don't have a whole lot of concern for their client's safety, it has to be said. I mean, they, they mentioned that something like, what, two dozen uh, you know, previous travelers have gotten killed going on. Yeah, this. but in fact, they've gotten killed. But who have they been killed by? I suspect they've been all been shot by Travis. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps Travis himself is uh, is has been hired by another company. Um, I, we, no. we will take you back to the past where you can kill a man.
Um, th- this wasn't the first time travel story by any means. There were many, many. What, what was the first one? Can can it be pinned down? Well, the idea of going to the future, traveling to the future, is that's Wells. No, no, no. Well, much earlier than that, but not using machines is uh, is essentially people falling asleep for a hundred years, a hundred years or whatever. And that that's a pretty old idea. There's the um, there's a, a folk tale of Thomas the Rhymer meeting the fairies, stepping into the fairy ring. He spends a night with the Queen of the Fairies, and when he steps out, it's seven or a hundred years later. So these kind of um, stepping into the future by sleeping too long. There's a the Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle, is yeah. it? But those kind of stories are are generally satirical stories about the changes in fashion and yeah. someone from the past looking at the present and saying this is all really strange and ridiculous from and the, you know the past was great the past, present is ridiculous there is a connection though a bit i think because some uh, the rip van winkle story uh, and some of these other ones that that you mentioned rip van winkle is a, is a famous idler you know he he falls asleep because he just likes nothing better than falling asleep under a tree and um there's a sort of there's this moralistic uh, mm. undertone which is well look look what happens when you just fall asleep and do nothing um, and so actions from the past affecting the future, even though um, there's not – even if there's no time travel involved at all, um, actions in the past affect the future. Well, yeah. yeah that, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that, it's called history, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the um, central strands of British culture since the early 60s explores this at, at a, a level that even children can understand, which is um, – uh, the idea of a of a doctor who goes into a small blue police box and causes the whole of history in every part of the galaxy by arriving and and making all the important things that happen happen and uh, I I think it's very interesting that this sort of key uh, golden age of British television does invent this um, potentially very rich. Um, story generating idea which can go anywhere in space and anywhere in time and then gradually over really a surprisingly long time it's an unusually long running franchise and yeah, that doctor who started, yeah, in, well, 1963. It started in 1963 and it's expanded straight away into strip comics of a quite a wide range and then there were lots and lots of novels and uh, novelizations and then separate stories and as it moved and changed and whatever a huge body of of uh narrative which doesn't all necessarily fit together so is there yeah. a sort of common strain of, of or are there rules in the doctor who universe for how time travel is supposed to work what can't work what can uh, yeah, I mean, gradually various things have, have been developed. Yeah, they, they tried recently to set something up. Um, there was an episode a couple of weeks ago where he went back to Pompeii and uh, I think his mouthy assistant uh, said, well, why can't you, you know, evacuate? And he was like, oh, it doesn't work like that. And it's kind of the first time he's ever had to answer that question and it's the first time he's it, no, it's he's the, ever had to give an answer and it's not a particularly good answer. What Doctor Who has mm. is a sort of protocol of... Um, let's not go there because bad things happen but the bad things that happen seem to be just untold mayhem and chaos as opposed to it's physically impossible it's not physically impossible it's like a really bad idea 
and he comes from a race of time lords who seem to have introduced a a politics of non-intervention in certain ways, presumably, because when they didn't do that, bad things happen. Al, you uh, you write stories for 2000 AD from yeah. time to time. Um, yeah. Some of these stories are, are time twisters. Yeah, the, the time twister was originally the um, so, uh, 2000 AD invented a... Um, it's an anthology comic, which basically uh, five pages a week. Mm-hmm. And primarily in order to sort of fill gaps in the pages. They mm-hmm. invented a thing called the Future Shock, which uh-huh. is a story with a twist ending. I think the term Time Twister came into existence to provide a sort of umbrella under which Alan Moore, um, the defamed uh, British comics writer who at the time was working... He was writing... and There was a Future Shock a week coming out with his name on it, uh-huh. and they were all brilliant. And I think that's where the Time Twister started because there were sort of ways he could play with... With time travel. And there, there are time twisters written by other people which have, you know, time tours which end up causing every disaster in history and then, you know, end up loosing Genghis Khan on the world when one of the unruly tourists is kicked off the tour. And it's well, like One of the solutions to the time paradox idea, one of the sort of most um, comedy staple solutions is essentially that you think, if I go back and kill Hitler then, you know, peace will reign, all the bad things won't happen. You go back, but the things you do are the things which cause Hitler. There was a particularly good Alan Moore time twister which played with that, which was um, uh, temporal researchers, historical researchers going back and studying, you know, Hitler in the bunker. And Mm -hmm. uh, so a man basically... uh, Putting, you know, putting on German uniform and, you know, going back to the bunker with, you know, papers and everything. And it turns out, you know, and then somebody starts uh, talking into his thumbnail. And it turns out everybody in the bunker is a historical research from the future, <laughs> including Hitler, who sort of takes <laughs> off his mouth and says, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a shoe salesman doing a PhD. It's all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but this, uh, and this particularly ridiculous... Uh, Particularly ridiculous thing. And uh, I think Gallimard gets out of it by having them all go into faking historical artifacts and using that to explain the, the Hitler diaries. There's some stories about a guy named Dr. Dibworthy. Yeah, this is another Alan Moore creation and another time twister. He was only in two stories, um, possibly because I think he was just brought back for another, uh, for another go-round. In the original story, I won't, um, I won't go into too much detail, but it involves him inventing time travel and immediately being pestered by various future versions of himself who come back to tell him you know, how to run it as a business and uh, whether or not he should invent it. Is it, is it what happens in the story? Oh, well, in, in that first story, he's basically sitting in front of the fire with a piece of folded paper, uh-huh. and it's just about to give him a great insight when suddenly there's a knock at the door, yeah. and his future version of himself telling him to go to the patent office right away yeah. and patent time travel. Uh-huh. And then another version of himself turns up in a, in a sling, saying on the way to the patent office, you'll be hit by a bus. <laughs> and then, you know, a third a third person tells him, no, look, don't listen to him, you've got to paint it. I'm in penury. I've been living on the streets for 10 years. And then another version, you know, with a, this one with a long white beard. I'm from 20 years in the future and trans-temporal war is a reality and Earth is in ruins. And finally, Dr. Dilworth says, look, how do I invent time travel? And uh, they say, well, it's that piece of folded paper in your hand. It will give you an insight into the nature of time. Mm. Dr. Dibworthy immediately tosses the folded piece of paper into the fire. It burns up. He closes his eyes. When he opens them again, all of the babbling strangers are gone. And, you know, then he relaxes with his glass of port. And there's something about the way, you know, the ripples in his glass of port that catch his eye. And then there's a knock at the door. 
And the last shot is this knock at the door and him just looking in despair. <laughs> um, but there was a second story which is a lot more relevant to um, A Sound of Thunder, which is uh-huh. uh, Dr. Dibworthy's disappointing day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, you know, it's the second Dr. Dibworthy story. And having invented time travel in the form of this window um, through which he can look at any any scene in the past and actually toss things through the window. And he, he wants to determine if he can actually affect the past. So he can throw things into the past yeah. by just tossing them through the window? Yeah, and he wants to, he wants to know if he, can, uh, if he can affect the past and if affecting the past will change the present. And his scientific means of doing this is to get various heavy objects and brain historical figures with them. <laughs> and the thing is, he keeps, he keeps doing that, and he starts with a sort of minor... And according to the narrative, you've got the, uh, so you've got the pictures, which is, you know, pretty much every picture is Dr. Dibworthy standing, rubbing his chin in front of his time window. And the caption says, well, he decided to start by braining an obscure Austrian diplomat, you know, sometime during the 20s. And the next panel, everything has changed. Uh, Dr. Dibworthy is in full Nazi regalia. There's a bust of Hitler. But the caption is saying, nothing happened. You know, and Dr. Dibworthy decides to go bigger and bigger. And, uh, and he starts. And every time he chucks something into the past, all of the decorations in his house changes, his costume changes, you know, the style of his hair. Everything changes, but the captions keep saying, nothing happened. It was very frustrating. Yeah. And finally, um, you're left in a hut. God knows how he's still got the time window, but it's basically <laughs> Dr. Dilworthy in a loincloth with, like, woad on his face and a bone in this, in this mud hut. And uh, somehow by throwing the bone through the window, he, uh, he decides he's going to stop the primal atom, the source of all matter and energy in the universe, from exploding. And uh, basically, the he's next going to stop the big bang from he's happening. He's going to stop the big bang from happening. And the next panel is um, pure whiteness, and nothing happened, nothing at all. It had all been a most disappointing day. <laughs> and it's it's kind of the opposite of um, it's the opposite of the Bradbury because the uh, in obviously in the in a sound of thunder, you know, by traveling through time, they're protected from the changes. Nobody, uh, nobody who's actually celebrating the win of President Hitler um, realizes that anything's been changed at all. Right. But, um, you know, and you'd have, you'd have thought um, Bradbury could have just as easily had an ending where, you know, Travis had gone back and it's like, tell me, tell me who won the election. Ah, oh, Deutsche, the Iron Man who will crush all the scum. In it. Oh, thank God for that. I thought something had changed. Mm-hmm. And that would be kind of just as twisty an ending. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But without the... The, the kind of can't we make it alive again is very Bradbury. That's a very sort of, you know, poetic, uh, yeah, and, poetic and heartbreaking. And loss of innocence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. So it's unsurprising that he went with that ending. But, you know, it could have been a different ending just as easily. Thank you, Al Ewing and Mark Sinker. Next week we'll be discussing The Tactful Saboteur by Frank Herbert. And our guest will be Ken Hollings. Thanks very much for listening.